Thank you for being here today, and I'm just looking forward to what we're going to get to share in the next few minutes. Uh, I want to just welcome you again to the ongoing journey that we've been on as a church as we've been walking through the story, uh, which literally has been a journey for us from beginning, the book of Genesis, and now we are coming to the to the end, which is the end of the book, the end of this journey for us, as we are talking about the book of Revelation. Um, I, I'm curious, how many, last week I gave a challenge to just encourage you to read, how many read through the book of Revelation, or at least part of it, this past week? How many would raise your hand? Cool, very good. I, I hope that it was, uh, I hope that you enjoyed that. I, I, what I found is the, the book of Revelation can be very polarizing when it comes to to, to people, it can be. There are some people who uh, just kind of ignore it. I don't want to go there. I don't get it. I'm not. I'm not interested in it. And so they really don't pay any attention to it. Then there are some that are so interested in it that they that they kind of are, are so focused on it that they 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 forget the main point of it. And that's what I hope that we're able to see as we go through this book. Is there was something a reason in which God gave us this book to to read and to to help us understand it? Let me ask you again. If, as you read through it, how many find it sometimes confusing, a little bit, uh, not, you don't quite understand it? Okay, I, I, you're just being honest. Sometimes I know people find it confusing, maybe scary. Uh, it's, it's even very controversial. My question is, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you, when you think about it, think about reading the book of Revelation, find it inspiring, find it strengthening? You see, that's the point that I, I've been trying to, to help us understand and been reminding myself of is I think that's why God wrote it for us. It should be something that actually strengthens our faith. Not just one of those books that we talk about and discuss, but something within it that God wants us to actually learn that will help our faith to grow and to be, to be stronger in the days in which we live. And, and that's what I'm praying will happen as we walk through it. What we're doing in this story is we've, we've decided taking the last chapter of the story, chapter 31, and we're going to kind of camp here for the, book, for the month of June. And we're going to camp in the, in the, literally in the book of Revelation and walk through it. So let me give you an idea. Last week, if you were here, we did uh, a, a very interesting uh, trip. We took the whole book of Revelation and just kind of did an overview, a flyover version of it. But we divided it in such a way that I hope it kind of made sense to you. So let me just kind of review a few things that we learned from last week. Number one is just the word itself. The word revelation is the word in the, in the Greek, it's the word uh, apocalypse, or that's where we get our word apocalypse from. And when we think apocalypse, we think of disaster and calamity and, and the walking dead. You know, we're thinking those kind of things usually when we use the word apocalypse. But by definition, revelation or apocalypse literally means an unveiling, a disclosure, a revealing. It means to uncover something. So the book of uncovering, the book of uh, unveiling, that's what the book of Revelation is. Now we know from the very first verse that it is the revealing, the unveiling of or from Jesus Christ. It's an idea of Jesus is the one doing the revealing. He is the one that is, in essence, he is giving a self-disclosure because the, the essence, the content of the revealing is Jesus himself. And that's what we find so encouraging, so hopefully inspiring from this book, is that it is a revelation, an unveiling of Jesus, of a new, fresh, and a glorified version of who Jesus is. But here's what I'm hoping that we get out of this book. It's also meant to be a book of worship, a book of confidence, a book of, of hope, 
a book that gives us something as, as we're looking forward to it. And, and as we tried to share last week, basically if we know it's an unveiling of Jesus, then it's who he, is he revealing himself to be to us. And that should bring us hope and confidence. Let me go through the ones that we talked about last week. He, we saw Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Everything starts and ends with Jesus and everything in between. He is the Yahweh who was and is and is to come. That's what we know from the book of Revelation. That's Jesus, right? We also found Jesus to be the Lamb of God, the one who died for the sins of the world, the one who died for us and is now worthy to open the seals. His, his death, burial, and resurrection gave him that position. As you keep on moving, you find Jesus as the righteous judge, the one who with that worthiness will come and judge the, the wickedness of the earth. Then we come to perhaps the, the most important and kind of the climax of the book, Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the most majestic. He is the absolute of all absolutes. There is no rivalry with Jesus. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then the book ends with Jesus being the bridegroom, the one who loves his church, loves his people, and will come and collect them. And that then enters into eternity. Now that's what the book is about. That's the focus of the book of Revelation, is it comes back to who Jesus is. But often what I found, people have trouble reading the book or they don't get much out of it or it tends to be just kind of a, a, a source of argument because we're missing the point. We're missing the point that this is what God wants us to get from this book is an accurate and a, a real version of who Jesus is. His glorified. It's about seeing Jesus. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. I, I'd encourage you to read it again if you did last week or maybe you just started and you haven't got, I'd encourage you to read it again. But as you do, and as you're coming to a point where it gets a little confusing, and you're getting in some of those chapters, you know, chapter 16, 17, 18, and you're not quite understanding, or maybe you're discussing it in your life group, and it's starting to get kind of heated, you know, and everybody's got this opinion, and, and is this really happened, and this person really go there, and what in the world is the beast, and what is that, you know, and you're just, just, when you're getting all that, and you're hearing that go, and you're kind of, your blood pressure's rising, just stop. Can I just encourage you to that? Just stop. Maybe even hold your hand up in your group and say, wait a second, remember, this book is about Jesus. Go back and think, okay, so who is Jesus in this chapter? What is he wanting us to see? Because that's what the book's about. And if we get a, a glorified version of Jesus, then we begin to understand what Revelation is all about. Which leads me to one other thing I don't want you to forget. There was a specific blessing attached to this book. Twice in the book of Revelation, the, the writer says this, blessed are those who read it, blessed are those who hear it, blessed are those who keep it, who, who make sure they take it to heart. It's the only book in the Bible with this specific blessing attached to it. So it is something that God says, if you'll take the time and you'll look at it the way it's meant to be looked at, it's about Jesus, there is a special blessing attached to that. There's something about how it would affect your life, how to affect the church, which only stands the reason then, please follow the logic here, that if God will bless the reading of it, then the enemy doesn't want you to read it. Does that make sense? That means the enemy is going to try to distract you or maybe try to get you off in a left field and, and just arguing about it rather than seeing who Jesus really is. It's that kind of a powerful book that I think literally can strengthen our lives. Now, I have to make a confession, so please just bear with me as I do for a moment. I committed the unpardonable sin last week, and I realized that. 
Because at the top of your outline, I left four lines blank, okay? And I know that really sent some of you over the edge, okay? You hate it when there's a line blank. Now, here's what's interesting is at the beginning, and I I have this verified at the beginning of each service, I said that I was leaving them on blank on purpose. I, I wasn't just missing them. Some of you didn't hear me say that. I won't mention her name, but my wife just didn't hear me say that, okay? So some of you missed that point, and some of you, it doesn't matter. It still just bothered you to to death to realize it. Some of you were actually filling in blanks, just making up stuff, because you just couldn't leave them blank. So today, I want to make everything right in your universe, all right? We're going to fill in those blanks. We're going to use them. They're on the top of your outline again today. There's four spots. Let me explain what those are about. And I, w- one of the reasons I felt like it'd be better to do it this week is why we left them blank. But as you're going through this book of Revelation, one thing that we're going to talk about is that you're going to have different um, versions of what, what certain things mean. Okay? And that's going to happen. No matter wh- how you look at it, sometimes it's because that's just the nature of this, this kind of, of literature as it's written. But there's also some things that will make a difference based on how you go into it, your viewpoint of Revelation, the way you choose to interpret it, or maybe the commentator you read, how he or she interprets it, and how they come at looking at it will make a huge difference on some of the conclusions that you'll make throughout the book. So I think this is an important part for us to stop as we're, we're continuing this journey through the book of Revelation is kind of give you some of those basic interpretations that are given, and, and then I want to focus on the one that we're going to use as we walk through this book. Let me give them to you first. And I, this isn't technical. I'm going to define them, so don't let these words scare you, okay? Let me give you the list of words first. You'll see them on the screen. It's the preterist, the historicist, the allegorical, or the idealist, or the futurist. Okay, so you can write those down, fill in your blanks, you can breathe, everything's done with the blanks, right? But let's go back and talk about these. Because each one of these now, if you look at the the book of Revelation through either one of these four lenses, it's going to change a bit of how you see this book, all right? Let me start with the first. Preterist, by definition, is, is one that they believed it was prophetic, believed that it was going to happen. It still hadn't happened yet, but that it would, but they believed that it was fulfilled or finished in the first century AD. And many of them believe it actually happened by 70 AD, which was when Jerusalem was, was uh, destroyed by the Romans. Most people believe if you're a preterist, preterist meaning past, that's what the word means, means that it, they believe that it was going to happen, but it did. It's already happened, and everything in the book was now a reference to that. So the beasts were some sort of the Roman governments and the Neros, and all, everything has already happened that you see in there if you believe the preterist point of view. All right. Now the second is a historicist similar in the sense of how they look at things from the past, but the way that the historicists look at it is, is this way. It's kind of a, I, I call it a panorama, a symbolic look of how that the, the, the ages of time from the time John wrote this, late in the first century, until when Jesus ultimately comes, back, uh, comes again, what you're seeing is just these different eras, if you would, of church and of history and how they worked out and how they affected the church. You would have when the apostles lived. You'd have the, the Middle Ages. You'd have the Dark Ages. You'd have the Reformation and the Enlightenment and then present day. And all of these things are just representatives. And so the things that are happening all were kind of introduced by the seven churches, and then just kind of each of these things and how that, that, that the different people rose to power. That's with the different animals and the beasts and all, all of that based on these different eras of church history. Then you have the allegorical or the idealist. And these folks believe basically that the book of Revelation is not to be taken literally. 
It is a metaphor. It's one of those books that just talks about the good versus the evil. It's just about, you know, the, the beast rising up. That's the evil in the world. And that ultimately good will overcome evil. And it's just, it's just a story of, of giving pictures. And, and basically, you're, you're not going to find a lot of, of literal events. And then the final is what's called the futurist, which a futurist believes that primarily the most part of the book that you read is, is things that are still to come, have not been fulfilled. Futurist believes that from chapters basically 4 to 22 are, are, are elements that have not yet happened. Um, a futurist does not deny the fact that some of the things in the book have happened, especially chapters 2 and 3 are his, have historical in nature. They also don't deny that there are symbols, that, that there are things that are representative. The Bible weaves Daniel in different places, show us that some of these things are symbolic of things that will happen. But a futurist would believe that these are, for the most part, these are literal events that were prophesied to happen when John wrote them, and they didn't happen in his lifetime, and they haven't happened yet. The sequence of events starting with chapter 4 has not yet moved into motion. And that would be the futuristic point of view of the book of Revelation. This last one would be the one that, you, that we will be presenting here. That's the one that we practice as a church, is that we believe Revelation to be primarily a, a literal section of events, but most of them have not begun or have not happened yet. We believe them still to come, that the same that, that John was looking forward to, we are looking forward to as well. And I use the, the outline Verse number 19 of chapter 1, if you were here last week, we looked at it. Let me show it to you again. Revelation 1.19 says this. To John, Jesus said, write therefore what you have seen. That's the things that John, the images that John saw specifically in chapter 1 and the images of Jesus. What you have seen and then what is now, the things that are happening right now in your life, John, the, the elements of the church and, and the things that are historic that we would talk about. And then what will take place later. And we believe that chapter 4 is when the what will take place later begins and goes through the end of the book. So it's, it's similar to what you saw in Old Testament prophecy. Something that was reality, but it's just reality that hasn't happened yet. It's written in such a way as, as this is happening or has happened, but it's just telling future events that are going to take place at some time in the future. And that's how we'll, we'll look at the book of, of Revelation. So I believe that there are seven years of tribulation that will, they're divided in three and a half years of peace, that there is a real Antichrist, that there is a real mark of the beast. We believe that there is a literal hell and a literal heaven, all, the lake of fire and, and the glories, a, a city with streets of gold. Those are all literal uh, pictures that God gives us, but they are things that, we're, that are still to come, that are still future in nature. Next two Sundays, we're going to talk about the future, the, what's going to take place next week and the week following. So today, I want to come back to that verse, and I want to take up the middle section. Today, we want to talk about the section of what is now. When John received these words from Jesus, he said, write about what you've seen, and we talked a lot about that last week, of who Jesus is. Next week, we'll talk about what is going to happen, but what is the what is now? Well, as you read through it, there are seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 that are written to seven specific churches and each of the letters starts very similarly. It says, to the angel or to the messenger of the church of 
write these things. And then he gives a specific name. That is the what is now. Jesus, the word, to the churches is how we're going to look at this today. We're going to talk about the fact that Jesus spoke a word to the churches. So you kind of get this picture of Jesus as he sees what's going on in the churches, kind of standing in this overview as a, if you would, a, 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 the, the, the ultimate church consultant. Okay, And he's going to give the churches, he's going to see what's happening there, and to some he's going to suggest changes, he's going to command some things, some he's giving words of encouragement, but he's giving, this is the word, Jesus Christ being the word, who was God and who is God, him being the word, giving exhortation to each of these seven churches. But here's what I want you to understand, these were real churches, these were real historic places, historic cities. John himself had some special connection with at least a couple of these churches, if not all of them. Uh, He was a pastor, we think, of at least one of these churches. So he had special connection. These were real churches, literal churches with literal issues that Jesus is speaking of. So this was historic fact, but these churches also now serve us as still churches that we're in the same line as those churches, but now we can learn from these seven original churches. There are object lessons that they taught us, things that they went through, that, it, that either churches that we know today are like these or churches go through phases like this. There, are church, there was a church that was suffering. There was a church that was succeeding as we would see it and moving forward. There was a church that was compromising. There was a, a lazy church, a busy church, all these kinds of things that we can use. They're literal churches But he gives it to us now, 2,000 years later, as object lessons of things we can learn from these particular churches. Now, one phrase that is repeated in every church, and I want to actually encourage you today to memorize this particular verse, because I think it summarizes these two chapters. And and it's the verse that Jesus now, remember, he's speaking to these churches, and he gives this special uh, exhortation. Verse number 6 of chapter 3 is the verse I want you to hear. And and this is one I encourage you to to memorize. It says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you say this with me? Because I think by the end of the day, this one could be in your memory. Say it with me, please. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's going to repeat this verbatim to all seven churches. Every one of the churches is going to hear this exact phrase. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches. Here's Jesus saying, okay, guys, listen, I, I've got a word for you. I've got something you need to hear. Listen up. Make, make sure you're paying attention. There's something important. Parents, you understand that, right? You, you, you got to tell you, and they just, you, you want to just take their little face and say, just listen to me, please. This is really important. This could help you down the road, right? Or your boss or manager, this could make the difference in our company. Just listen, please listen. and resp-. That's what Jesus is saying. Listen, I have, I have a word for you. Whoever has ears, if you're willing to listen, this is that critical. This is that important to what you need to hear as a church. And so as we're going into this, we're not going to look at all seven of the letters. I want to just pull out one of the seven letters to one of the seven churches as we take this overview today. And, and the particular church that we're going to look at today is one that kind of answers the question, what do you do in life? What do you do as a believer? What does a church do when they come to a dead end? You, you know what a dead end is, right? It's, it's a place that you come to in your journey where there doesn't seem to be an outlet. It's come to a stopping point. And, and, it, and we, we refer to that as, as a, a dead end, a, a no outlet situation. And, and this particular church is, is there. 
They, they've come to a stopping point. And, and here's what I want to suggest, that we, we are going to find those points in our life. Personally, maybe it's your growth, maybe it's a, a change. We're going to find this as a church, that we could be moving along and, and they come to a point where there's, there, there doesn't seem to be any movement. Things are, um, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's a, it's a habit, something you come to, you've seen progress, but at this point, there's a dead end. You're not moving. Things, things have come to that stop. It's even possible sometimes, I think, to come to a dead end and, and not even really be conscious of it or at least not admitting it. Have you done that? You've gone on a road, you, you turn down, and you, you find yourself off a quarter, half a mile until you come to the, the road just stops. And it's frustrating. You think, well, why in the world? And you go back to the first of the road, and, oh, there was a sign there. It said dead end, right, or no outlet. Or maybe the sign was covered. Maybe it was knocked over. Or maybe you just ignored it and went past it. But you come to a point when you realize that this, this end is going nowhere. And that's where this church that we're going to look at today finds themselves. And, and the most important thing is we recognize that if, if we've come there or if we're getting there, that we find a way to, to get out of it. We don't just let that happen. We don't just say, well, that's the way it is. I'm just, that's what life is for me. Or maybe even we can find some things that can help us stay off of those dead-end tracks. Either way, I think we can learn from this church. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It's the church of Sardis. He said, to the angel of the church of Sardis, write these things. Let's historically understand Sardis just a little bit. It helps us down the road. Sardis historically was, had, had been an influential city. And even at the time of John's writing, was a fairly powerful. It had, had some good uh, industry, fairly rich in and of itself. It had some military strategies, which we'll talk about in a minute. But also Sardis was known to be kind of up on the same scale, if you, if you know Bible history at all, with the city of Corinth. It was known as a, 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 a wicked city in, in a lot of senses. The, the, the goddess of, of Sardis was one who worship to her was, was best done in some perverted uh, fashion. And so the city was just, in all of its luxury and all the stuff that they had, they also just, it was just kind of an no-holds-barred kind of a society. So what you have is a church in the middle of this this stuff that has the potential to be this great light, to make an impact, to influence a wicked society. But that's just not what's happening. And that's what, the, that's what Jesus, how he addresses this church. Let's read it in verse number one. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Each church has a different picture of how Jesus is represented. And here the seven spirits, the seven stars, is talking about the fullness of God's spirit and the power of his message. He's coming and saying, church, you can do this. He's coming with that kind of an image of all that he can do in and through them. It's it's the idea this church is not done yet. But notice the next phrase. He says, I know your deeds. Boy, I, I would circle that one. I would make a note of that because that's one that is so, so important for us to remember. We tell our kids that, right? And we even believe it to most degrees that Jesus sees everything you do. He knows your deeds. You know, be careful what you do. And, and, and on one hand, yes, he, you, can't, you, you can do whatever you want in the dark and pretend that no one sees it and he sees everything, right? 
Or, on the other hand, you can do things and you, and you feel like no one ever notices and, it, you, and, and he sees everything. He knows your deeds, just in and of itself, period. He knows what you do, everything that you do. But notice as he continues, he knows your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. There it is. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He says, guys, uh, you have this, this reputation of life, but what I see is, is a dead church. Now, understand kind of how this would have come about. They didn't have the Bible as we have it, and he'd say, turn to Revelation. This was a letter that was being distributed. It was a letter that when they, it came to the churches, the, the church would gather around, and, and the, the messenger or one of the messengers would read this new letter. So there's probably a sense of excitement. Hey, John sent us a new letter, guys. We got, this, we got this new correspondence from John. He wants us to hear this. And, and as, he, as he sets down, as he begins to read it, he says, listen, you have a reputation for being a healthy, growing church, but in reality, you're dead. Can you kind of hear the oxygen being sucked out of the room about that moment? As, as the Jesus who's looking on, who sees everything, he says, what, what is seen here is not really the reality here. And there's some problems with your church. You need to listen up. If you have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to your church. Are you ready to hear this, Sardis? Are we ready to hear this? I'm telling you folks, this is a very powerful, exciting part of this message, but it's also quite ominous when we think about someone who knows our deeds, looking at us as a church and as individuals in the church, and what does he see? If you keep going, verse 2, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. There's a secret here of growth for this church, of getting past a dead end. It's not like this church is over and done with. What we're going to find that there is still life, there's still hope, there's still a spark there. But rather than give up or it's overwhelming or we can't do anything, it, it, it's kind of like the song we sang earlier. There, there's a God in this city He's still working. He's not done with us yet. He wasn't done with Sardis yet. They got an issue. But rather than give up, what is his, according to my translation, his admonition is wake up. There's a, you need to be shaken out of whatever it is that's keeping you from, from being what you need to be. You've, you've got complacent. You've got lazy. You've allowed yourself to become part of the culture rather than making a change and that you need to wake up. I want to try something today. This, this is something that some of you will recognize, an alarm clock. Um, some of you see this on a regular basis, right? Well, this is one of those, and I'll just be honest, this isn't one of those kind of, it wakes you up gradually, you know, it has soft music that kind of starts your day in a, in a nice way. This is one of those alarms that, that when given, it, it wakes you out of a dead sleep, it stops your heart, you know, a little bit. It, it's one of those true alarming type alarm clocks. I, I set the alarm, and at some point during their service, it's just going to go off. Now, I say that because first service, I set it and I must have said it wrong because it never went off. <laughs> there was actually five girls here that didn't even, they didn't hear a word I said after I set the alarm. They were just waiting for it to go off, and it never went off, okay? So 
Who knows? Maybe I did that on purpose. You never know. But here's the, here's the point. There, there is a, a way in which that alarm comes. I, I've come to this point in my life. I'm old. I'll just admit it. I, I don't use an alarm clock most of the time. Some of you know where I'm at. You just, at some point in life, I, I set the alarm for 5 and I'm awake at 4.45. Or I set the alarm for 7 and I wake up at 5.30. It's like, what, God, let me sleep. It just doesn't work anymore, okay? You understand where I'm at? However, there is something about that alarm that changes that, that state of sleep in which you're in. And that's the point that John makes through Jesus to this church. At some point, it's about waking you up to the fact of, of where you're at and what you need to do. And church, that's what I hope he does. I hope corporately, as a church, maybe we'll see some things that God wants to shake us out of complacency or apathy, or maybe individually as a Christian, that we just we see what it means and what God wants us to understand as far as this, this waking up for us and in, in, in where we are. So as we look at this church as Sardis, I want to use this expression of bringing faith back to life, of seeing faith that, that seems to have hit a dead end come back to the point where it's vibrant, where it's alive, and where that can be applied individually or it can be applied corporately, but we see what God wants us. And I want to, these next few minutes, to be as practical as I possibly can because I believe this is such an important message, what the Spirit is saying to this church, that I hope you'll grab it. And so to be as practical as we can, I want to suggest three prayers that I would even encourage you to make a part of your daily regimen of just starting your day, maybe ending your day with these three prayers. Let me share with you what they are. Number one is this, Lord, help me to see the gaps in my life. Help me to see those holes. Maybe, maybe you could use the word the inconsistencies in my life. Let's go back and read what, what the Spirit says, what Jesus says to the Spirit to this church. He starts off with this. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have a name. People think that you're alive. People would assume that you're alive, but you're really dead. Reality is different than what's being portrayed. My wife and I, a couple weeks ago, we were in an airport. I think it was in Amsterdam. We're walking through and came across this section just full of beautiful flowers tulips and roses, and it's just gorgeous. But I noticed something. I said something to her. I said, but there's no fragrance. You would think with that many full-to-life flowers, there would have to be something, a fragrance would catch your attention. So we got closer, and guess what? (laughs) They're all fake. They were all silk. They looked beautiful, but there was no life. That's what the Spirit said to this church. You have this reputation, a name for being alive. You're saying all the right things, but in reality, there's, you're dead. In reality, you've, and, and don't, can't we do that, church? We learn to play the game. We learn to do church. But, but in reality, if it's just between us and God who we're, we are. That's what Jesus is saying. It's between you and me now. And when you say this, uh, you, you're showing this, and, and it's great. We have to, have the, we have to show Christ the world. I am not, but that's important. But the truth is we can put on the right face, and we can, we can put on the right, the, the right words and right actions. But when Jesus sees our heart, is it really alive? Are we really doing it? Are there some gaps between what we, what we uh, are put, portraying and what's real in our life? Are there some gaps between what we're saying and what we're really doing? 
Are, are there some gaps between how, how what, the words we give to people when they're the right words, because we've all learned how to put on the right image? Can we do that as a church and as individuals, but not be really living up to what God wants us to do? The phrase that I, I gave you about bringing faith back to life, it's a double meaning in my opinion. One, yes, it's a bringing faith, kind of resurrecting it, renewing it. But it's also about taking faith and making it real in your life, bringing faith to your life. In the sense of there, it is so easy for us to, to make our faith about what happens in these walls on a Sunday. What happens in these walls as we come together and we know how to look the right way and we know the right words to say and we're friendly and we got a smile, but then we just kind of shut it off Monday through Saturday. It happens often, and that's an inconsistency that we're, between what we say and what we're acting and what we're truly, but our life needs to reflect our faith. Our faith needs to be weaved in everything that we do in our life, the places we go, the way that we treat people, the things that we do. The, the point is this, God, show me. Lord, I just stop, and I'm open. I'm going to be honest. I don't want to, but would you show me some gaps? Would you reveal to me some ways in which I'm saying things, but I'm not really living them? Or some ways that people think this, but it's not really true, and I want to live in a reality of what I say to be real in my life. Maybe it's about your integrity. Maybe it's your honesty. Maybe it's your, uh, maybe it's about fear when you say, yes, you're strong, and you know deep down you're not trusting God on a daily basis. Maybe it's forgiveness versus bitterness. Maybe all of these things. I say it. I, I tell people. People think I'm going that way, and, and if, if, we, if that was all that was needed, then I've got it down, but Jesus sees something different. Lord, show me the gaps in my life. In fact, you go down in verse 2. He said, I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Even the fact of things that we start for God and we go, we get gung-ho, but then we don't follow through. We don't complete. And we've got things going, but we don't move through. Is there gaps? Is there differences between what we say, what we do, and what we really are as Jesus would see us? It's another prayer I'd challenge you to pray along the same line. David actually gave it to us, Psalm 139. He said, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my, my anxious thoughts. He said, and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you be willing to pray that daily? God, show me the gaps. I, I want to live consistent. And I'm not talking about being perfect here. We're going we're gonna to have the struggles. We got that. It's about taking that next step. It's about, God, I see this gap, and, and I, I, I want to address that one. I want to see this. There. I, want, I don't want to walk through these dead ends as if I can't see them anymore. God, show me the gaps. Which leads us to the second thing, and I think this church would understand, is now, Lord, help me to close those gaps. Show me the way to, to find a solution to where I can start living the way that, that I say that I want to live or the way that I know you, you want me to live. Let's go back to the verse. He says to them, verse 2 and 3, Wake up, strengthen what remains is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. As we walk through this, let me just pull out from that verse some things that I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to think about as we walk through. As, as we work through maybe getting out of a dead-end situation, whatever that would be, or maybe even to avoid one. Here's the first phrase he says, wake up. Now, we, we talked about that from an alarming sense of mind, but the word literally means, the phrase literally means to watch, to be watchful. 
to be vigilant, to look out with care. It helps if you understand a little bit more about Sardis. Let me explain. It worked this time, by the way. Don't you hate that sound early in the morning when you've been dead asleep? Here's the thing that we, I hope you understand. And first service, we were hoping that this would happen, and, uh, and it didn't. And some people kept them awake just because they were waiting for the alarm to go off, which that was kind of fun too. But, but the thing is, you, you don't know when that's going to happen. It's the fact you anticipate it. But it's the fact that when it does, it, it shakes you. It changes just for even for that moment. It changes your perspective. That's what John says. Wake up. Be watchful. Take a different perspective on what, what you're looking at. Here's what was happening in Sardis or what had happened historically in Sardis. Said it was an influential city, which it was at one point. In fact, it was one of the richest cities in that area at one point, and partly because their position, they were about 1,500 feet above the plains below them, and the only way that you could reasonably get there was this narrow road that led up into the city. It was a road that was easily defensible. It was a road you could see anybody coming from miles away. They just seemed almost just completely fortified because on the other side of the city were these sheer cliffs that, that just that you couldn't, couldn't bring an army up those cliffs. And so all you had, the only way in was this little road. And so for years, they, left, they were left untouched. No one could get to them. But the Persians found a secret, and the Greeks later repeated it. Because, and, and the story goes, and I read it from several sources, so the somewhere in here is the truth, but the story basically goes like this, that one of the soldiers in the city, as he was looking over the cliff, he dropped something. They said he dropped maybe his helmet, and it, it rolled down the side of the cliff. And as the Persians were watching, they saw that this man somehow made his way back behind, got, retrieved his helmet, and went back up in the city. And suddenly they realized they're not as, uh, they're not as defensed as they think. There is a way up this side. So both the Persians and the Greek, in a nighttime raid, they sent soldiers up the side of those cliffs, probably with, with ropes and whatever, but they sent them up the side of the cliffs, and as they came over the top, you know what they found? There wasn't a guard within sight. They were all asleep. No one could even imagine that they could be attacked from that point of view. And so both times they were taken almost without a fight because no one was awake, no one was alert, no one was watching. So when John says to this church, wake up. Remember what happened in your city? The same thing is possible in your spiritual walk, in your church, in your individual journey. That if you're not careful, there are things, there is an enemy. There are things that, that, that can come up and defeat you. There are things that you could miss, opportunities that go right by you if you're not being alert, if you're not being vigilant. On the one hand, it's the things that are coming to destroy us. There's an enemy who wants to stop us. So this verse came to my mind, 1 Peter 5, 8, because it uses the same word. Look when it's, you'll remember it. It said, be sober, be vigilant. That's our same word for, that we have in, in this verse of, of watch out. Be vigilant because why? Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There's an enemy that wants to stop you, wants to take you out of your game, and, it, and he says you've got to be watchful. Don't ever think that, that you're that you're past it. Don't ever think that, that maybe it's those one things that, that you're very tempted by, the things that you're vulnerable about, and you know that. Constantly be watching because he's going to try every different way he can to get that vulnerable exposed. But maybe it's even the things you think, oh, that'll never bother me. Those areas become Sardis areas where if we're not careful, the enemy will do whatever he can to take us down, take us out. He says, so what do you do? Wake up, be alert, watchful. But on the other hand, 
What about tomorrow when God brings a, an opportunity in front of you, a way to serve him, and it's a little out of your comfort zone, or it's a little tough, or maybe you're just being oblivious, maybe you're just wrapped up in who you are, and you miss what God, his point is this, wake up, be alert at all times to see that God has a plan for you. God has a plan for his church. Romans 13, verse 11, you know what sort of times we live in? And so you should live properly. Notice, it is time to wake up. The alarm is sounded. <laughs> Don't hit the snooze. Wake up and be alert to what God is doing and what the enemy wants to take away from your life. Wake up. Then he says, strengthen what remains. I love this phrase. Someday I want us to jump into this even deeper, but just, just take it surface for a moment. Think about in our lives, often I have found personally that, when I'm, that in the issues of my life, I focus on the weaknesses. And, and, and it's important to strengthen your weaknesses. I, I don't, but, but I focus there, and I miss strengthening those things that are actually going well. The, the, I have a tendency to do that even when I look at church, and I, I see all the things that should be going better, and I miss the things that God is doing. What he's literally saying, strengthen what remains. The things that still have life and breath in them will help them, encourage them, water that seed, put some miracle grow on that plant, help that strength, the thing that is working, help it to go forward. I, I've often recently realized when a couple comes into my office and they're struggling in their marriage, one of the things that I... That that I've seen is at that point, pretty much both of them think the other one is just ridiculous, just absurd, right? They, they, and you look at them, you think, how in the world did you ever get married in the first place? They just have no, because all they can see is how bad it is. And all the, and, until we start to unfold this a little bit, and I start to ask questions like this, like, so what's going right in your marriage? Why did you marry this guy in the first place? Sometimes it takes a while to answer that question, but why did you marry this person in the first place? And when you start unearthing the fact that there are some strengths in that marriage, there are some things going right in that marriage. So yes, let's focus on the problems we have. We'll work on those, but let's make sure we strengthen the things that are going well, that we work on those things. So if it's in your spiritual walk, what are the things in your walk that, that you see there is life? In our church, there is life. Well, let's make sure those things get watered and taken care of and strengthen the, the walk of reading the scriptures and praying and worshiping and the things that God does here. And let's make sure those get stronger because that only makes the whole body stronger. Strengthen what remains. Then he says, remember. Remember what you have heard, the things that you've received. It sounds very similar to what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy. He said, um, continue in the things that you have learned, knowing you've learned them, that from a child you've known the holy scriptures. And he goes on to describe the scripture. And so what John is saying to them is, okay, church, remember, you've had a lot of teaching. You've had things shown you. Remember those things. Stop for a moment and just recall what God has already shown you, the things that God has already done, things he already taught you. Remember what you have received, what you have heard. And he goes on to say, and hold fast to that, or literally obey that. Stick with it. You, you know what's right to do. One of the first things we're told is making disciples is baptize them and then teach them to obey everything God has commanded. So you've been taught, you've received some things, so hold on to it. Obey it. Do what God has called you to do. And then finally, he says, and repent, which we know to be, by definition, a change of mind, a change of direction, a 180 turn. 
When we come to salvation, that's what it is. We repent, we realize we've been going our own way, and we repent and follow Jesus. In our spiritual walk, there are days that we find ourselves, again, going the wrong direction. It's about knowing, remembering what we've heard, remembering what we've learned, and then turning and following Jesus again, recommitting our life. It's not about that we've lost salvation. It's about that now we know where we've got off the track. We begin to follow him again. But here's what you got to understand. In these verses, what he's saying is, church, you've heard all this before. Remember it. Now hold fast and do it. Not only in church do sometimes we, we miss the connection of faith in daily life, sometimes in church we miss the connection of hearing and obeying, of learning and applying. And what what he's saying is, church, you know this stuff. Now hold on to it, grip it, and do something with it. You can hear all the great messages that you want. You can hear this sermon. You can read this sermon. You can hear these guys, and you can stop and say, wow, that was wonderful. But the point is, did you get anything? Are you applying anything? It's like when my kids were growing up, and I'd look at my son and say, son, you've got to clean that room. You know, they're going to call the cops on us at some point. You've got to clean that mess up, right? You've got to go in there and clean it. And, and he'd say, sure, Dad, I'll, I'll take care of it, right? A few hours go by, a day or so goes by, and I open the door, and you still can't see the floor, and the stench just knocks you over, and you go, what in the world? So I go to my son. I say, son, what, what about the cleaning the room? You said you'd take care of that. Dad, I just want to tell you, when you told me to clean my room, That was the most amazing speech I've ever heard in my life. I've never heard anybody put that in such great words. I was moved to tears, Dad. My heart was just a flutter. How you said that and the way you explained it and the need for it and all of those things, it was just phenomenal, Dad. Well, that's great, bub, but why is your room still a total wreck? Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a difference between, and, it, and so you can hear all the messages you want. You can, you can have your favorite sermons, and you can have this guy, and I, and I hear people talk about how, and, and that's nothing wrong with any of that, but here's my question. What are you applying from what you've heard? If you go home today, and you don't take any of this, and you hear what the Word says to the churches, and you don't make it a part of your life, then what good was this 40 minutes that we spent together? It's about taking and hearing it, remembering it, holding it fast, repenting, changing your mind and saying, okay, I see it, now i got to start doing it. You want to get out of a dead-end situation? You want things to change? You want to stay off that dead-end road? Here's what he says. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you've heard and learned, hold on to that, repent and start doing it. Pretty practical stuff, if you ask me. As you keep reading We've talked about two prayers. Let me throw out the last to you. Not only show me the gaps, Lord, and show me how to close these gaps, but let me give you one last word that I believe is extremely encouraging. The last prayer would be this. Lord, thanks to you, I will overcome. I will have victory. didn't say, Lord, I hope I will have, or that would really be nice if I could see victory. But there is, a, there is a positive experience here that he's talking about. I, it's not just what we hope. As you go on through this verse, you go down into to verse number 5, or actually verse 4. There are a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Verse 5, the one who is victorious, I want you to circle that. Your version may say overcome. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. 
Here's the point that he's making. There is a, there is a victory that he has now shown that is a reality for certain people that he's, he's addressing. Let me just jump on that word a minute, that word victorious or overcomer or overcome, depending on your version. It has an interesting history. It's the same word, has the same root that we get a word that we're kind of familiar with. Um, it, it's, it's actually a, a Greek god that we still worship in America by the name of Nike. <laughs> Have you ever seen the little swoosh on your, on your shoes? Well, that was part of the, the goddess of Athena, the, the, the goddess of Nike, who has the idea of victory and conquest and speed and athleticism. And, and you have the little wings, and that's what the, we just saw that a couple weeks ago. And that, it was all the swoosh comes from those wings. That's all that stuff. Well, that's the same root word. He says, I'm telling to you as Christians, there is a victory for you. There is a overcoming for you. There is a, a conquest, a, a way to conquer. It's about this, this is something that he's promising to, to God's people. What a, an amazing thing that he says. And then right in the middle, he says this, and I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. Some of you may read that and immediately there's a little panic that's involved. <gasps> Does that mean my name could be blotted out from the book of life? Is it possible that, they, that I might not be able to hold on to this? I mean, what if I blow it and, it and they blot out my name? Here's what I want you to understand. This verse is written to us to encourage us, to challenge us, to strengthen us. What he's giving in is this word of encouragement to, to overcomers. And he's saying, and he uses the, that word never is one of the most intense ways of saying it you could in the Greek language. He, he, to, to say it best, he basically, it's a double negative. He says, I will not never, I will never ever, I will never ever, 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 I will not ever blot out your name from the book of life. He's saying that there are people who are overcomers, and they, their future is secure, their home is secure, their, their name is secure in the book of life. So who are these overcomers? First Peter chapter 5, or 1 John chapter 5. Listen to how John writes it, verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Same word. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is he then that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's my question. Have you been born of God? Do you know Christ as your personal Savior? Do you, have you received his gift of eternal life? Then by definition, you are an overcomer. You are victorious. Oh, there will be struggles. That's what an overcoming does. He overcomes through the struggles. There will be times when you will fall. There will, you're not a perfect person, but by definition of who you are in Jesus Christ and you put your faith in Christ, you are victorious. You are an, an overcomer. And he's telling you that within this church, there are those, and in the midst of all the other crazy stuff going on, there are those. They're not perfect. They've got to make some changes. But I want you to know you are still overcomers. I will never blot your name out. You are secure in, the, in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to say to you. You know Christ. He's wanting to move in your life. But here's one thing you can say to him every day in prayer. God, because of you, I'm an overcomer. I'm an overcomer eventually, future, but that also means I can have victory today. I can have victory in, what I'm, in, in my life right now. I'm an overcomer eternally, but I can be an overcomer in life. What an amazing, an amazing promise and picture he's given to this church, for all those who know in Christ are overcomers. So let's live like that. Let's live in the power that God has given.
And then he ends it the way we've started it. Whoever has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Have your ears been open today? Have you heard what God has said to us? Is it possible that as a follower of Christ, you need to wake up? You need to kind of let God shake you out of complacency and realize you're here for a reason. Don't let the enemy defeat you. Don't let the opportunities step by you. Let Christ show you what he can do through your life. Maybe even this morning there's one that has not yet received Christ. You wouldn't be a, considered an overcomer because you've not, you do not know the Son of God as your personal Savior. That could change today. Today could be the day that you recognize your need of salvation. You come to Christ and receive him as Savior. Whoever hears what the Spirit says to the churches, what do we do with that information today? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heads bowed and our eyes closed. Let's just take a time and let God's word just uh, kind of sink in, melt through us. If God has spoken to you, I invite you to respond. If you've heard what the Spirit says, I hope that you'll do something about it today. If you're here today and you've not yet in this life stepped across that line of faith and received Christ as Savior, then today I would, I would call you, I'd invite you to receive his gift of salvation. To call out to him and say, God, I recognize that I'm a sinner and I recognize that I've gone my own way, and, but I believe Jesus died and rose again to give me new life. And today, I, I want to follow you, receive your gift of salvation. Would you do that today? Maybe as a Christian, God's already started to unearth some gaps that you see. Sure, I'm a follower of God. Sure, I believe that stuff, but your life, your true life doesn't match up. And he's, he's showing, listen, you may think, you may even have people fooled. I know the truth. And inside I see a lot of dead. And as God's showing that to you, would you just be honest with him, confess it, and say, God, help me to see how I can change it. Help me to get back into following you, trusting you, close those gaps. And oh yes, God, thank you. Thank you that I'm an overcomer in you, and I believe your power can make that change in my life. Father God, spent time in just looking at your word and I pray now that you just, your spirit just lets it just sink in and make a difference and that we will have ears that are hearing what your spirit is saying to us as your people, as your church today that it will change our lives we won't leave here the same because we're hearing what your voice is saying to us, please Lord. our heads are bowed and eyes are closed Garrett continues to play God has spoken to you. I invite you to take some time and speak to him. You can, you can pray right where you're at. Maybe you need to pray with someone. We would love to have you come and we'll have someone here to pray with you. Or you'd like to know how you can know Christ as Savior, we'd love to show you that. Maybe today the alarm's gone off and God has woke you up. Now, what are you going to do with that? Let's just take some time and, and let God speak to us.